for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. This is already turning out to be a a, a crazy, memorable, interesting week. And and that's just with the news, you know, that's uh, making its rounds regarding Christianity. And boy, the program's going to be packed today. Let's see, we got a little McLaren, a little Warren news. We got the Gabe Bishop who's going to be doing the pre-inauguration event. See, uh, you know. <laughs> And uh, let's see, we've got McLaren. Well, we got all kinds of stuff today, folks. Uh, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. The goal of this program is, on a daily basis, to dish up a, ba- a daily dose of biblical discernment. Take a look at what's going on in uh, Christianity by people who are popular Christian leaders, Christian authors, and maybe even not so popular. We'll even go for the uh, the obscure person from time to time and just test to see what it is that they're preaching, teaching, and confessing and comparing it to the Word of God. Why? Well, Jesus Christ, in talking about warning about the last days, his warning was, let no one deceive you. And so we kind of work from the basic premise that there's there'd be a whole lot of deceiving going on out there and uh and somebody's got to stand up and say no um that's not what the bible says and so that's what we seek to do and i got to warn you ahead of time this program could either cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church or it could cause you to uh, become e- elated and excited and very happy about the fact that you're going to a good church. So if you're going to one of those uh, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, water-down-the-message-and-give-people-what-they-want-to-hear kind of churches, uh, listening to this program could cause you to uh, have a crisis, could put you into a situation where it's time for you to uh, either chat with your pastor or find a different church and find a pastor Get this, even in a small congregation, a congregation that may not have a basketball court, may not have a family center, may not even have that big of a youth group, but the pastor, as obscure as he might be and as small as he might be, actually preaches and teaches Christ and him crucified for your sins on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis, never ceases to preach the good news to both Christians and non-Christians, so... And you can get the sacraments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And honestly, can you imagine that? Actually having the Lord's Supper on a regular basis rather than on just Christmas and Easter? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a different show topic altogether. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you're listening to Fighting for the Faith because I directed you to this particular uh, program due to uh, something I posted at the Museum of Idolatry, yeah, in my spare time, like I have any, um, I, I happen to be the curator of the Museum of Idolatry at a littleleaven.com. And at a littleleaven.com, I put up a post yesterday, and the, the, the name of the post is Who Said This? Who Said This? And today in this uh, program, we're going to reveal who said this. And what what I did is, I, I while I was doing some research last week, while we were researching, I came across a very obscure, hard-to-find quote from kind of a something from the 80s, okay? Now, I'm, I'm revealing a little bit about the quote as we're talking here. And what I found amazing in this quote 
and I'll play it for you later, is that uh, in this particular quote, uh, the person who is um, speaking, the person who is speaking is, uh, is um, <laughs> we have a phone in here. Uh, the person who is speaking it sounds a lot like these emergent guys, and uh, and so as a result of it, I think uh, I, it, what happened is is that in listening to this, I was amazed at the the language that this gentleman used, and he was way ahead of his time. He, I mean, he, he, he in fact it makes me think that uh, this guy has a lot in common with the emergent church, so much so that I needed to. Um, that I needed to put a quote up there and uh, I asked the question who said this and I didn't say who said it and I didn't even put the person's name up there because I thought it was interesting. So basically, let me read the uh, from the Museum of Idolatry. I, I write, last week while we were researching, we came across a very obscure and hard to find quote and rather than tell you who said this, where we found it, we thought, or I thought, that it would be more educational if we reproduced the quote and then asked you to identify the source. We'll reveal the author in a future post, actually. We're going to do that today. Uh, but for right now, we'd like you to read the quote, or I'm going I'm to read it to you. Think about what it says and see if you can, without uh, using Google, guess who said this. So this is a quote, and funny enough, this is not from any of these emergent guys, but I want you to hear the quote. The simplistic claim that Jesus is God is not affirmed in Scripture, this person says. By that I mean, when Jesus was the incarnate one, he prayed to God, but he was not talking to himself. He had the sense of God beyond himself. He died. God did not die when Jesus died. God was still there with the power of resurrection. So that to make the simplistic identification between Jesus and his incarnation and God is not part of the Christian narrative. Narrative. See, see that's, that's one of the things I want. Wow. These emergent guys are constantly using the word narrative, you know, narrative theology and, and uh, things like that. And I'm thinking, this person was way ahead of his time. I think this guy was one of the first emergents. It's, he continues, he says, What the Christian narrative seems to me says is that God was in Christ. That when we meet Christ, we meet God. I cannot think of God apart from Jesus Christ. I cannot think of Jesus Christ apart from God. But I think that the whole doctrine of the Trinity in the Christian tradition was an attempt to keep separate while affirming the unity, I, I, I do not think there's a separation between God and Jesus. That would cause me to say that Jesus is not God's saving revelation in human history. You know, and, and what struck me about this quote, so that's the quote, what struck me about this quote is that uh, this guy sounds every bit as convoluted, confused, and equivocating, and changing of, he changes definitions and kind of monkeys with words and, and does things that, are, that, that obscure the, the gospel and Christianity rather than clarify it, and he was way ahead of his time. But I asked the question at uh, the Museum of Idolatry, was it Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, or uh, Rob Bell, or somebody else? The answer to the question was neither of them, but it was uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong. <laughs> okay, who outright denies all the cardinal doctrines of Christianity. We played a quote from him last week. And so what I'm going to do real quick here is I'm going to actually play um, play a segment from uh, uh, John Spong's debate that he had with Walter Martin back in the 80s on the... Uh, what's the name of this program? It's... Uh, you know, I want to say that it's uh, the John Ankerberg Show. That's what it is. All right, let me. So here we go. This is, give me a second here while I whirl up the magical uh, video playing machine, and uh, we'll get this thing going here. And uh, 
So this is from the John Ankerberg show in the 80s. And uh, th- there's this wonderful exchange here. And here we go. Let's listen. Here. And uh, Bishop Spong, I want to come to you. And because television is so, uh, so brief and uh, we have to get right down to the point, uh, I hope you'll pardon me if I, I give you one of the toughest questions right at the beginning. But uh, uh, we're friends, and I enjoy your friendship, and sometimes friends can disagree. And, and so let's, let's start with a tough one, but no, notice that I'm trying to, uh, to couch it in the best terms I possibly can, okay? I've, I've read your books, and in reading uh, your books lately, I think that the question that many people that are Christians across the country would want me to ask first off, as they've heard you on television, as they've read your books, and as they've heard what you've said in print in the newspapers, you deny that Jesus is God. You deny the Bible is the literal Word of God. You deny the biblical definition of sin. You reject the biblical teaching on salvation, that a person must believe in Jesus Christ in order to have his sins forgiven. You reject the traditional uh, Christian doctrines of heaven and hell. You reject the Ten Commandments, for the most part. You deny the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, for starters. Now, my tough question is this. If you deny all of those things, are you a Christian? Okay, I'm going to stop right there for a second. Okay, what's funny is is that so many items in that list that John Ankerberg just cited, you know, the things that that, uh, Shelby Spong back in the 80s was denying um mclaren and some of these emergent guys they deny those same things and yet they they don't claim that they're they're liberals they're they try to distinguish themselves from the liberals okay and what's funny though is is that even though they distinguish themselves from modern liberalism they come to the same conclusions as the modern liberals have and so I guess it doesn't really matter what route they took to get there. The end result was is the same, right? You know, you have Brian McLaren denying the substitutionary atonement, completely retooling uh, what Christ came to do, you know, recouching him in more of Hegelian Marxist terms, uh, denying the doctrine of hell, um, saying that God spoke to Muhammad, um, basically claiming that he's a follower of God in the way of Jesus, which makes it makes you go, hmm, is it possible to be a follower of God in the way of Allah or the way of uh, Buddha, you know? And so McLaren is, you know, it, the reason I, I didn't say who who it was is because in revealing who it is, you realize that even though the, the emergence claim to be other than liberals, their conclusions are the same and their rhetoric is almost identical always having to kind of couch their terms ever so carefully and play these little semantic games. But uh, so let's let's hear John Shelby Spong's now, uh, his response to this question from John Ankerberg all the way back from the 1980s. Well, first of all, I'd say that about 99% of those assumptions are inaccurate. Which one would you say is inaccurate? Well, take any one. Which one would you like to well, start with? Jesus is not God. You say in Hebrew, Lord, quote, the simplistic suggestion that Jesus is God is nowhere made in the Bible story. Nowhere. Yes. Or the Bible is not the Word of God. If we take well, the Bible seriously, we will not be able to take it literally, etc. Well, let's take the first one. Okay. Jesus is not God. 
Yeah, but what I said in the book was that the simplistic claim that Jesus is God is not affirmed in Scripture. By that I mean that when Jesus was the incarnate one, he prayed to God. He was not talking to himself. He had okay, got to stop there. When Jesus was, <laughs> when Jesus was the incarnate one, and reading immediately, I, my my theological uh, radar is going, Bing, 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 Bing. We've got a hit. There's something wrong here. You know, bogey alert. <laughs> Why? Because when Jesus was the incarnate one, that's some strange language. What is what is he? He's monkeying around with some things, right? He's pouring some different meaning into things, and he's made the claim that Jesus never made the simplistic claim that he was God. Oh, contraire, he did. But um, you know, we went over that stuff last week in the Doctrine of the Trinity discussion. So l let's continue. So let me back it up just a hair here, because I, you know, again, watch how he is playing with the language. He's really, really slick, etc. Well, let's take the first one. Okay, Jesus is not God. Yeah, but what I said in the book was that the simplistic claim that Jesus is God is not affirmed in Scripture. By that I mean that when Jesus was the incarnate one, he prayed to God. He was not talking to himself. He had the sense of God beyond himself. Uh, yeah, you ever heard of the doctrine of the Trinity, Bishop Spong? He died. God did not die. When Jesus died, God was still there with the power of resurrection, so that to make the God was there, still there with the power of resurrection. Okay, you see how he he's driving a wedge between Jesus's claims to deity, the biblical claims in the Scripture regarding Christ's deity, and somehow is making Jesus something other than God. Simplistic identification between Jesus in his incarnation and God is not part of the Christian narrative. What the Christian narrative, it seems to me, says is that God was in Christ, that when we meet Christ, we meet God. I cannot think of God apart from Jesus Christ. I so God was in Christ. Is that any different than the Holy Spirit indwelling us? You see what I'm saying? The way he's describing it, it doesn't sound like there's anything unique in his incarnation. I cannot think of Jesus Christ apart from God, but I think the whole doctrine of the Trinity in the Christian tradition was an attempt to keep separate while affirming the unity. I do not believe there's a separation between God and Jesus that would cause me to say that Jesus is not God's saving revelation in human history. All right, Dr. Martin. Ugh. So Jesus is God's saving revelation in human history. So that's the quote. That, that You've heard the quote. I kind of chopped it up a little bit. But tell me, I, I defy any of you to tell me that that is not exactly what these emergent guys sound like. You know, they're, you know, what are they doing? They're constantly attacking and rethinking and, and reimagining uh, the, you know, the Christian church and its doctrines, right? And Shelby Spong has done the same thing. It's all this semantic garbage. It's worth listening to Walter Martin's response. We should hear his response. You've, wrote, you've written a book, a classic book, called The Kingdom of the Cults. And it seems like uh, under the chapter of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, that same kind of idea comes up in a different form. But what would you respond to Bishop Spong concerning what he said about Jesus? I think what we're dealing with is what has been called theobabble. Uh, the bishop makes a statement, uh, clear-cut, 
Jesus is not God, a simplistic idea. Then when asked about it, the bishop says, uh, but actually that's not what I meant. And that would be true virtually of all the propositions which were enumerated. Uh, the problem is that the Episcopal doctrine, affirmation of the Trinity, says that Jesus is God the Son, second person of the Trinity. When the bishop took his ordination vows, the bishop said, I will obey Jesus Christ. The bishop said he was subject to the authority of the scriptures. The scriptures say, not simplistically, but clearly, Jesus is God the Son, very clearly. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was face to face with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Every time he celebrates the Eucharist in the Episcopal Church, he is affirming John chapter 1, even though he may not want to believe it, he's doing it. But Jesus made the statement himself that he was God in the clearest possible terms. In John chapter 8, the Jews said to him, uh, you're not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham Jesus said, before Abraham came into existence, I am. The bishop knows perfectly well. It's a quotation from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew, the King James Bible of the day. The Jews understood it. Verse 59, they reached for rocks to kill him. Why do you stone me? Not for your good works, but for blasphemy. And that thou, being a man, are making yourself out to be God. One of the clearest cut doctrines of historic Christianity and of biblical theology is the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. To make such statements outright, he is not God, uh, however you equivocate afterwards, is to do a great disservice to the Lord you swore when you were ordained that you would defend. <laughs> I think that counts as a theological smackdown, you know. In Where are the Walter Martins today, man? I tell you, you know, Shelby Spon, <laughs> notice that you know he says uh, that you know the Jesus, you know this idea that Jesus is God is not you know the simplistic idea is not stated in scriptures, and then he comes up with all these bizarre ways of trying to twist himself theologically into a pretzel in order to somehow sound like he's trying to affirm something of you know that, oh I believe that God was in Jesus, you know that kind of stuff, but he's he's attacking the doctrine of the Trinity. It's it's clear. Let's listen to a little bit more of this. This was really good. Right, right along in that area, in, in affirming what you were saying there, uh, it ties in also to who Jesus is and what he does. For example, you say, whatever brings affirmation becomes a savior, and we will bow and worship before it no matter how bizarre its shape might be. Salvation is to make life whole and free, sensitive to the selves we are, the neighbor we love. That's not exactly what most Christians believe is said about Jesus as being the Savior. They see people as fallen from God in the sense of they have sinned deliberately, and they need forgiveness, which Christ provided by his sacrificial death on the cross for their sins. He offers them a gift. But I don't hear that in your writings. I think it's important that we go back and let me respond to Dr. Yes. Mark. I'd like you to bring both of those together that in, in terms of who Jesus is as well as his being the Savior. Well, I think the difficulty is that we're talking about the, the way people described an experience. Uh, part of the evangelical Christian uh, tradition that you represent is that the first foremost and primary thing is the individual experience that a person has with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
what? This is again, this is you know what he's attacking. If he let me translate this for you, he's attacking the scriptures. You know, the scriptures are not the, the word of God. They're they're human attempts to describe their experience with the divine. Okay, go ahead and sing it, Chris. <laughs> feelings. Nothing more than feelings. I'll be I'll be here all week. Thanks to you. That's Chris the Lounge Lizard. Ay, ay, ay. I knew, knew you wanted to do that. <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> I think we need to get that experience back into our understanding. Oh, man. Not just the opposite. I know. We need something objective outside of us. Because my feelings kind of run hot and cold and tepid and, and and all the spectrum in between. And it might even just be if I, you know, if I would exercise, I'd be able to, you know, never mind. The scriptures. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote about their experience of God in Jesus. But they they all wrote about their experience of God in Jesus. Really? See, folks, when you hear those words, your ears should immediately perk up and go, wait a second, this guy's denying the scriptures while trying to somehow make it look like he's affirming it. See, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all were describing their experience of God in Jesus. No, they 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 documented their day-to-day life with Jesus. They spent three years with the guy. They were familiar with his stump speeches backwards and forwards, and they were recording for us what they saw and what they heard. And so, in fact, with the exception of probably the transfiguration, Right, which was which was really a uh, really an out of the box kind of uh, experience. The experiences that the disciples had with Jesus were pretty common and pretty earthy. They traveled to this town, which means that their feet got dirty. They had to clean their you know clean their feet and you know and uh, you know they and then Jesus stood up and said this and or Jesus got up and did that and the poor and and the and those who were sick came to him and he healed them. It, for the most part, I mean. They're re- they're being journalists, okay? And he's saying that they're trying to describe their experience of God in Jesus. And notice he's he's dis- he's dis- put a distinction between God and Jesus. The two are separate in the way he's speaking. They wrote in very different ways, and they wrote in very different times. It's interesting that Dr. Martin quotes the fourth gospel in both of his references, and the, particularly the quotation when Jesus was talking about his origins and the, Jews, the Jewish people were saying, you're not 50 years old. And, and the, the Johannine Christ responds with the words, the Johannine Christ. What's that mean? Uh, well, apparently there's different Christ depending on who you, it's dependent upon the, per, the person experiencing him. So, so you're, you're John, your name is John. So you, yeah. okay. So you have, you have your own Johannine Christ. I have a, a I have a Chris Christ. <sighs> Strange language folks. Words mean things. You know, I remember a trip that I took to Chicago a few years ago and we went, I went to Wisconsin. Actually, Chicago is one of the places we visited and then we went to out into the middle of Wisconsin, in the middle of nowhere, to Peter Bender's neck of the woods, and I, it was a, cate- a conference on the catechism. And Ken Corby was still alive at that time. It was a, it was a fun trip that I went with a few friends, 
And uh, and afterwards, uh, we we actually went to Chicago, spent a little bit of time in Chicago, and uh, myself, Rick Ritchie, and uh, a couple of friends, we went hunting for some good uh, theological architecture is probably the best way of putting it. And so, you know, we, we tootled around Chicago looking for old Gothic, you know, churches. And one particular church just still stands out in my mind. And that is, is I had seen pictures of it, you know, in its heyday, and it was, it was a, a, it was a Gothic architecture Catholic church, and we had walked in to it uh, at the tail end of one of their masses that they were that they were holding there, but it was huge. So I mean, it's like we didn't disrupt anybody. I mean, we can kind of, and there were people moving around during the whole thing anyway, but. I had seen pictures of this particular church, you know, at the, you know, in the time of the 40s and the 50s, and their stained glass windows at that time were just like beautiful, okay? You know, depicting the saints in different pieces, you know, parts of Jesus's life. And when we sat down in the pews and I was kind of taking in the architecture, I noticed that all of the stained glass windows that had one time when the church was originally built had the saints and and pictures of Jesus's life they had all been replaced and the stained glass window that was in its place was just random multicolored glass they they went from having meaning to having no meaning you know to having you know you, to where you could, if even if you were illiterate you can see the pictures you can see the story art in 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 churches still mean something to me. Yeah, it does. Even when you look out the window. Right. You're getting Christ. Children are learning about Christ through art. Exactly. And they do and they're they're drawn and they're attracted to pictures. I mean, you know, it, you know I like picture books, but <laughs> most of the stuff I read doesn't have any pictures. I remember as a kid, I would love it when I'd be reading a story and I would get to a page that had a picture. You know, it was like, ah, yeah, this, this is great because it would help me, you know, again, kind of see what's going on in my mind's eye. And and so it was really discouraging when I went to this church and all of the great stained glass windows that had been there had been replaced with completely meaningless color blobs. OK, this is what this is what Shelby Spong is doing here. He's taking something that has meaning and he's trying to pour the meaning out. So that at the end of it, the words don't mean anything, you know, just pour in whatever you want to, you know, whatever your experience is, let that dictate to you what the meaning should be. (sighs) Before Abraham was, I am. I think you need to relate that narrative to the context in which John wrote his gospel, to the experience of the Christian people that was that was going on about 100 A.D. when that gospel was written. And most particularly, you need to understand that when the fourth gospel was written, the Christian, Jewish Christian people had been excommunicated from the synagogue where they were still participants. And John was a part of that, uh, of that situation. And when he wrote his gospel, he wrote it so that Jewish people could hear him talk about the experience of Jesus Christ. Where does that phrase, I am, come from? It comes out of the Old Testament. It comes out of the book of Exodus. It comes out of the burning bush where the name of God was given to Moses with the, with the Hebrew phrase that we translate Yahweh, but which is a part of the verb to be. And we translate that I am that I am or I will be that I will be. And John was claiming for Jesus in that particular quotation. John was claiming for Jesus. Remember, words mean something. He's got this 180 degrees backwards. It's not that John was claiming for Jesus 
that he was deity. It's that Jesus was claiming to be deity and John documented it. You see the difference? I mean, 180 degrees out of phase. Identity with the great I am of the burning bush story. Okay, but I, you don't. I'm going to back this up just because you got to hear it again in context. Here we go. Great I am of. Oh, man, Rosebro. Off the mark. Here we go. John was claiming for Jesus in that particular quotation identity with the great I am of the burning bush story. But you don't get to that simply by taking the scripture of John and looking at it. I'm. I'm <laughs> What could you don't get that by just reading the the scripture of John and getting that? Well, that's funny. The text itself just takes you there automatically. You, you say if you if you read the passage, you go, "What is Jesus saying?" He's this "I am" thing. Anybody with just a little bit of biblical smarts, a couple of brain cells to rub together, and a little bit of memory, who go, "Oh yeah, Exodus three." Quite convinced, and I don't mind saying Jesus Christ is my personal savior. Uh, I was raised in the South in a fundamentalist tradition. I understand that. All right, I appreciate that. I have that. no problems with that. But you say, quote, Jesus could not be the substitute savior that so many theories of the atonement seem to suggest. We'll stop right there. Jesus cannot be the substitute savior. We're going to stop right there because you know who's who's picked up John Shelby Spong's you know, bucket here to carry this water? Brian McLaren of the emergent church. That's why I'm saying I think John Shelby Spong is probably the real father of the emergent church movement. Great segment to start up. All right, right, we're going to take our first break. And uh, when we get back, we'll continue with that, you know, and uh, see what uh, John Shelby Spong has to say about that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so. We'll talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact, LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage.
All right, we're back. Uh, we're in the middle of a um, little bit of revelation. I'm beginning to uh, completely think that uh, the emergent church movement is nothing but a rehashed version of uh, modern liberalism. It puts on postmodern airs, but the the conclusions are the same. You got John, in the back in the 1980s, you got John Shelby Spong playing all kinds of uh, semantic gymnastics regarding the deity of Christ, and he denies the substitutionary atonement. And uh, and what's funny is is that emergents like Brian McLaren, Doug Paget, Tony Jones, even Rob Bell. They do the same theological gymnastic stuff, and they, 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 their gymnastics are a little bit different, okay? It, it has a distinctly postmodern feel to it, but they come to the same conclusions. So I just think that, uh, that the emergent church is basically nothing more than postmodern liberalism, or could you call it post-liberalism? Yeah, I don't know. I you know, it's not like they're going to let Rosebro dictate. You know what what that's going to be, uh, what the official term is going to be. But uh, anyway, we're we're going to continue with uh, John Shelby Spong here. Um, hang on a second here. Let me crank up the volume and run the tape back just a second here. Here's John. Here's John Ankerberg asking John Shelby Spong, a much younger Shelby Spong. I mean, he he. He looks a lot older in that video we played last week. And uh, talking about his denial of the substitutionary atonement. It's tradition. I understand that. All right, I appreciate that. I have that. no problems with that. But you say, quote, Jesus could not be the substitute savior that so many theories of the atonement seem to suggest. That's you correct. have written a God who would crucify Jesus to satisfy an offended sense of justice is no God for our generation. A substitute savior will not translate in our day if indeed it ever really did. So obviously... Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That's that's uh, Ankerberg quoting uh, quoting John Shelby Spong, and Sh- Shelby Spong basically said he completely agrees. Well, that's the funny part is that uh, this is exactly the same type of argument that we get from Brian McLaren. Okay, fast forward the tape now, almost thirty years. And uh, and you've got Brian McLaren making the exact same types of arguments uh, and, and appearance that he that he made. All right, let's uh, let's listen to a little Brian McLaren. So this is one of the huge problems with the um, the traditional understanding of hell, because if the cross is in line with Jesus' teaching, then and I won't say the only, and I certainly won't say the. Uh, or even the primary, but a primary meaning of the cross is that the kingdom of God doesn't come like the kingdoms of this world by inflicting violence and coercing people, but that the kingdom of God comes through suffering and willing voluntary sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. But in an ironic way, the doctrine of hell basically says, no, but that's not really true. At, At the end, God gets his way through coercion and violence and intimidation and uh, domination, just like every other kingdom does. The cross isn't the center then. The cross is almost a distraction and false advertising for God. <laughs> oh, Brian, that was just so beautifully said. I, w- I was tempted to get on my soapbox there and, and you know, there, because as you and I know, there are so many illustrations and examples you could give that show why the traditional view of, of hell completely falls in the face of uh, go. it's just 
antithetical to the cross. Yeah. Um, and to, but the way you put it there, uh, I, I love that. I mean, it's so the doctrine of hell is antithetical to the cross. And then listen to carefully to what he says about uh, the atonement. It's false advertising. Um, and here, Jesus is saying, uh, "Turn the other cheek, love your enemy, forgive seven times seventy, um, return violence with self-sacrificial love." But if we believe the traditional view of hell, it's like, well, do that for a short amount of time. Because eventually, God's going to get him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and in a, I heard one well-known Christian leader, who I won't mention his name just to protect his reputation, because some people would use this against him. But I, I heard him say it like this. The traditional understanding says that God asks of us something God is incapable of himself. God asks us to forgive people, but God is incapable of forgiving. Uh, God can't forgive unless he punishes somebody in place of the person he was going to forgive. God, God doesn't say to, to you, um, forgive your wife and then go kick the dog to vent your anger. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. um, God asks you to actually forgive. Uh, and there's a certain sense that a, a common understanding of the atonement presents a God who's incapable of forgiving unless he kicks somebody else. So there we got uh, Brian McLaren ever so subtly in that postmodern subtle way. Basically attacking the doctrine of the Trinity, not the, not the Trinity, but the doctrine of uh, the substitutionary atonement, and basically saying, "Oh, if you believe that, then you got to believe that God, you know, can't can't forgive you unless you know it, it, unless He goes and punishes somebody else." And it completely misunderstands the fact that Christ died for our sins. He was our substitute because He's taking on the punishment that we deserve. God is both loving and just. Okay. And uh, they seem to attack that. But uh, anyway, so tell me that doesn't sound a lot like what Shelby Spong was saying. You know, I think John Shelby Spong is the true father of the emergent church movement. He needs to read Narnia. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Well, I wonder what so – we'll see. Okay, let's – let's. T- <laughs> okay, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Right. Okay, okay. We're, we're going to do this on the fly. So you got Edward who betrays his, his, uh, his brother and sisters, right? And uh, he he goes in league with the uh, Jadis, the Queen of Narnia. And as a result of you know what happens is is that uh, Aslan sends some people. They set him free, bring him to the camp. He hooks up with Aslan, and Jadis comes marching into the camp like she owns the place, and basically saying that she's got a claim on that kid's life, and that uh, you know, and that he deserves to die, and that and he that that. Uh, Aslan has to give Edward over to her, right? And if that happens, then the prophecy's not fulfilled and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, what was the solution as Aslan offered himself to Jadis instead, right? You know, basically he was uh, he was Edward's substitute on that uh, on that table. But see, if we were to interpret this according to McLaren's view of the uh, of the atonement, which you find in his book Everything Must Change, then what really what happened is is that the reason why Aslan died on the stone table was to show Susan and Lucy just how brutal and un, and unjust uh, the, uh, the imperial system that Jadis had set up was. It was, to, it was the ultimate demonstration of just how wicked and evil the, the, her, her, uh, her imperialistic reign of terror is. And so that way then Susan and Lucy would never then, because they've now seen how, how nakedly oppressive it is, they would never even be tempted to hook up with that imperial way of thinking. And even the, the uh, Bieber's description 
Oh, Aslan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he, what is it? Uh, is he safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's go back to the John Ankerberg show again. The, the issue here is uh, that we're t- it's just the similarities between John Shelby Spong and um, the Emergent guys. Uh, there's a breakdown here, and I think Walter, we need to have you respond to this thing of uh, a going me. Well, uh, the bishop makes the statement, uh, the Johannian Christ. Is the Johannian Christ different from the Matthaean Christ, the Lucan Christ, the Markan Christ? Is John really the author of the book? Was he really an eyewitness bishop? Did Jesus really say that? I don't think he did. No, and I don't think that John was an eyewitness, not the John that wrote that book. There you have it. You know what? You know what the difference between John Shelby Spong and Brian McLaren is? Yeah, I, I'm going to say this straight up. Spong's a better man than McLaren is, and the reason why is because he's at least willing to hang it out there and be honest with his convictions. McLaren hides behind postmodernism, and oh well, we got to think this, and you know, and we 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 ha- these are better questions that we can ask, and and they're they're always having this conversation, but never coming to any conclusions. The results are really the same, though. A co- you know, a complete undermining of the scriptures, a denial of the substitutionary atonement, but it's not done as bluntly as the as the as John Shelby Spong did. At least Spong is honest. McLaren, he, he he's a weasel. And he's a weasel because he won't come out and just say it openly. Because he knows if he does that he'll be shot down just as badly as, as Spong is. So he's trying to find a way to to smuggle in Spong's convictions, but obscure them using postmodern speak. Most biblical scholars would date the fourth gospel around the turn of the century. Uh, John would have been, John Zebedee would have been over 100 years old. Yeah, then why do we have the John Ryland's papyrus, which, yeah, never mind. Forget the facts. I mean, he's at that time. I'd say that most biblical scholars believe that that book was written by one of John Zebedee's disciples. Uh, I would accept the authorship theory that it was John the Elder of Ephesus who was a disciple of John Zebedee. But I don't know any biblical scholars of significant note in the world of biblical scholarship today that would say John Zebedee is the author of the fourth gospel. But even more, that's because he only reads liberal scholars. <laughs> All of the people who already agree with my way of thinking, they've already concluded that, that that John could not have written this, and they're the only people that I recognize as scholars. So every, there's, there isn't a scholar out there who believes that John actually wrote it. Isn't that called circular logic? Yeah, never mind. Important. You see, you've got a time lag that's very dramatic. I read the Bible every day of my life. It is a, it is the most important book in my life. But I think it's- there it is again. That's the Bible's a really important book. Remember Borg saying that too. It's important. <sighs> it reminds me of the guy who writes a book and then he has footnotes, and all his footnotes are other things that he's written. Right? <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. That we understand it. The 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 Pauline corpus. Most scholars believe Paul did his writing somewhere between 49 and 64. If we date the crucifixion at age at 30, which is what is generally done, 30 AD, that means Paul is writing 19 to, what, 34 years after the time. That means the Christian tradition has lived in some oral way from that period of time until Paul does the first Christian writing. Mark is dated 65 to 70. That is late. I absolutely deny it. I've, I, I, I think Mark was written, like, way early. Luke and Matthew are dated 85 or so. John is the most difficult to date. 
And there are scholars that date John all over the book from about 70 A.D. to about 100 A.D. All right, we're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, I want to talk about why William F. Albright, Johns Hopkins. All right, we'll stop there. I'll put a link up to the first YouTube video at fightingforthefaith.com so that you can kind of follow up on it. And, And just so you know, folks, liberalism. Modern and postmodern, or modern and post-liberalism, you know, mo- modern liberalism and post-liberal, I don't know what the, folks, you need to read a book. The name of the book that you need to read is J. Gresham Machen's stellar classic entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And it just so happens that we, <laughs> that we are offering this at, uh, at, uh, piratechristianradio.com. This is our featured ebook for the book of, uh, for the month of January. And I know if you're listening to this podcast and it's February or March or later, you're thinking, well, the, does it apply to me? Absolutely. Just go to piratechristianradio.com and click on the store during the month of January. It, you, you can see it. Um, you can see it, uh, at the cover on the homepage. Absolutely. You need to read it. And it's a bargain at $5 and 95 cents as an, ebook it's a bargain you need to read it and uh, folks if you subscribe to the fighting for the faith podcast then and you uh, and you and you have an rss reader or itunes then you will notice that uh, a couple of days ago that the pirate christian radio journal otherwise known as the lighthouse is featured in our in our uh, podcast stream and um, we have an excerpt of the book in our journal this month and so uh, check your check iTunes and you know and check your, uh, your your the RSS feed coming in off of this and we'll we'll make a link available uh, at Pirate Christian Radio for the journal for this month. But if you want to get a sample of what this book is about, then uh, then check out the journal, folks. This is a book you need to read, and it's every bit as relevant today as it was written back in the 1920s. Why? Because these emergent guys are nothing but liberals in disguise. That's really what they are. And they'll sit there and say, oh, no, we're different than liberals, and we're, we're, a, we're a, a Hegelian synthesis of both conservatism and, and liberalism. That we're, we're, we're rethinking the, the conclusions are the same. They undermine the scriptures, deny the substitutionary atonement, come up with the same kind of malarkey. In fact, listen to this. From Brian McLaren's blog, the name of the post is, uh, the conversation is changing. Listen to this. Brian McLaren writes, he says, um, there are two important ways that the religious conversation in America is changing and needs to keep changing. First, we need changes in the way we address our points of controversy and conflict. Two cases in point. Abortion. 30-plus years of pro-life versus pro-choice debate have gotten us nowhere. Nothing has changed, polarization paralyzes, and that's worse than a stalemate. Uh, Because huge amounts of money, energy, and loyalty have been expended that could have been invested more profitably, differently, or elsewhere. So now the conversation is shifting from abortion criminalization to abortion reduction. Wow. He continues, that to me is an encouraging sign. People can be both against abortion and against criminalization. And they can be both for choice and for reduction. The old hard-bitten categories may soon be identified as part of the problem. Where can this shift in our conversation lead? Now, I want you to think about this for a second, okay? He thinks it's a positive thing that that it's going... By the way, abortion criminalization, okay... Yeah, we want to say that abortion is no longer legal, okay? That we we don't want it to be available. Why? Why? 
Well, because it happens to be murder. It happens to be murder. It kills a human life, period. And so imagine, if you would, we were living in uh, in late 1930s Nazi Germany and, uh, and you know, the regime goes from bad to worse and they start rounding up Jews and putting them in concentration camps. And, uh, and so on one side of the debate, if they allow the debate, you have the people that are basically saying that uh, Jews are scum and they need to die. And then on the other side of the fence, you've got people saying, no, they're human beings and this is, this is systematic murder. This needs to stop now. Okay. And McLaren would come along and say, well, listen, what we really need to do is find a middle path between these. You know, maybe rather than criminalizing the this, the extinction of Jews and killing Jews in, in the concentration camps, maybe what we need to do is work with the Nazi regime so that we can work towards a, a reduction of the number of people that they gas. Right? Because, um, you know, does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. Well, well, see, don't you understand that these polarized opposite sides, I mean, the Nazis on the one side who are killing the Jews and the people who are saying that this is wrong and this is genocide, I mean, what we really need to do is find a middle path between them so we can we can come up with, uh, with a reduction in the pe- number of people being gassed. I mean, that, doesn't that sound loving and kind? Not quite. Really? Yeah. How about, um, let's take it back to American history. Okay, during the uh, 19th century, before the Civil War, I mean, the the country was very polarized on the issue of slavery, was it not? Yes, it was. Okay, so much so that the polarization led to the tearing apart of our nation, did it not? Yes, it did. Okay, so, um, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's, that's, ultimately was about states' rights versus, you know, the, you know, uh, seizure of power by the, the federal government. In fact, I've talked to some people in the South that are in my family. They still called the Civil War the War of uh, Northern Aggression. But anyway, so uh, let, let, but let's talk about the slavery issue. So we've got two sides. We've got one side basically saying, no, we have a right to own slaves and we're never going to give up our slaves. And on the other hand, you've got people saying this, this, this is demeaning, it's demoralizing, it's, it, 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 this is a sin, it's not right. And so Brian McLaren comes in and said, well, really, well, we don't want to get rid of slavery. We want to, we want to have slavery reduction. I mean, wouldn't that have solved the problem? No. So keep slavery safe and legal, but let's reduce it. Right? <laughs> this is, he's, people are reading McLaren going, oh, wow, this is so sage and so wise. And, you know, wow, you know, this, we, we, don't want to, we don't want to polarize America on, on the abortion issue. Well, the problem is, is that it's a polarizing issue because if you understand that we are made in the image of God, and that that it, it no matter how you slice it, the fetus is not is not the same as the mother. It's a different human life. It's genetically different. It you know it has a different heartbeat. This is a human life, and abortion kills that human being. And so we as Christians we stand up for the unborn and we say that's murder, and we pour our energies into getting that outlawed so that women don't have a choice to kill their unborn child, right? Now, we do that as Christian citizens of the United States, and it's a polarizing issue because it's either murder or it's not, and if it's murder, it needs to stop. That's 
what it comes down to. And the people who are for abortion, oh, no, it's about a woman's right to choose. How she, no, it's not. It's not her body to begin with. Anyway, so let's read more of McLaren here. Uh, on the issue of homosexuality, which apparently is a polarizing issue here, the conversation is shifting now from laws, uh, how laws can be used to marginalize, shame, disadvantage, and otherwise express disapproval of homosexuality. So that's our problem. This is that, that we have laws that um, marginalize, shame, disadvantage, and otherwise express disapproval of homosexuality. Okay? You know, um, you know the laws that are out there right now, um, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, they actually marginalize shame, disadvantage, and express disapproval of people who steal people's stuff. I mean, these are otherwise really good people, right? It just so happens that from time to time they put on a ski mask and, and invade people's houses and take their things. But, I mean, when they're caught, what happens? We've written laws that marginalize those people. Don't we? Okay. Isn't that horrible? I mean, those poor thieves, these people who steal stuff, I mean, they they can't be come out in the open with, about the fact that they're thieves, and as I mean, and, and if it gets out, then then people shame them and marginalize them and disapprove of their behavior, their thieving behavior. Can you believe that? I mean, O.J. Simpson. Did you? I mean, all he was doing was trying to get his own property back, right? And look at how he's been marginalized and shamed, and and how you know, and now he's 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 in prison. I mean, does that? I mean, who are we to judge? O.J. Simpson and, and marginalize and shame him in such a way as that. <clears throat> These are called reductio ad absurdums, folks. When the argument is stupid, show it to be stupid. <clears throat> or how gay and lesbian people who probably make up 6 or 7% of the population and always have and always will be uh, should be treated in a civil society. Folks, here's the deal. I've had employees who've worked for me who are homosexuals. Okay, and I treat them just as civilly as I would anybody else. Why? For the love of Christ, right? Okay, so we don't have we as Christians don't have to, you know. The, there's nowhere in the Bible that says we must treat homosexuals as if they have a scarlet letter H that they wear on their sweaters, and that we are to somehow throw tomatoes at them or something. The Bible doesn't say that. But see, here's the deal is that homosexuals are running around the landscape, and what are they offended about? They're offended about the fact that Christians won't allow the, the word to marriage to be redefined, and they're really upset about the fact that Christians are saying that homosexuality is a sin. Okay? They can't stand that. In fact, there was this wonderful quote that was on Oprah not too long ago. Let me pull this up on the old magical... Uh, you know, Got to go to a little11.com. This is, um, we put this in the Museum of Idolatry. Ed, uh, our, our good friend Ed Bacon. Um, whoa. Our, our friend Ed Bacon was on uh, Oprah's Spirituality 101 show. So listen really carefully here to this opening phrase. Here we go. This is a pastor. Being gay is a gift from God, but our culture doesn't understand that. And consequently, the culture sends messages that you ought to isolate. Okay, uh, so the Reverend Ed Bacon, 
he's wearing a clerical collar and he's made the claim that being gay is a gift from God. Uh, where does it say that in the Bible? Where does he get the authority to say such a thing? The scripture is clear that homosexuality is a sin. Just as bi- every bit as much as, um, let's see, lying is a sin. Uh, adultery is a sin. Stealing is a sin. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Gossip. Yeah, go- gossip's a sin. And so, I mean, it's a sin. All right? And uh, But he's making the claim that it's a gift from God. Okay, I guess, I mean, so rather than marginalizing, that's what he's doing. He's doing the opposite of marginalizing. Here we have the Reverend Ed Bacon. He's changing the conversation uh, away. He's no longer marginalizing or shaming uh, people who are homosexuals by saying that it's a sin. Instead, he's making the claim that it's a gift from God. I mean, that's the opposite of shaming, right? It's not. Don't be ashamed of being homosexual. Don't worry. It's not a sin. It's, it's a gift from God. God. God gave you this special gift of being gay. That's not what the scripture says. And only somebody who has completely lost his mind and his biblical mooring would say something like that. All right, let me continue with uh, Brian McLaren here. Okay. By the way, you can uh, hear the rest or watch the rest of that video at a little Okay. Or how gay and lesbian people who probably make up six or 7% of the population and have always have and always will estimates range from three to 10% should be treated in a civil society and how people who disagree on the issue of gay marriage can avoid polarizing, paralyzing discourse that goes nowhere constructive. Uh, (laughs) I anticipate thinking of Melissa Etheridge's beautiful insights on the subject that the conversation will continue to shift on how the gay, lesbian, uh, trans, and that that and the straight communities can work together for the common good in critical areas of peace, poverty, and care for our planet. See, because that's that's pretty much all the church is about is peace, poverty, and taking care of peace, poverty, and caring for the planet. Um, the new liberal agenda. No forgiveness. Of sins. No, 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 no. We don't believe in the forgiveness of sins. Who needs that? Because that would require you to uh, say that something is sinful. All right. So, what was the crucifixion for? Um, that okay. Again, let's review this. According to Brian McLaren, the purpose of the crucifixion was to show you the brutality of the imperial suicide machine. Does his church have communion? It probably. In fact, I, from what I understand, those emergent guys they probably have communion more often than the uh, than most evangelicals do. So they can remember Jesus, right? Yeah, and you know, never mind. <laughs> it's not what Christ did for them. No. <laughs> no, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about Christ dying for our sins because that means you have to talk about that thorny subject of sins, right? Anyway, we're going to take our second bake, and when we come back, um, I'm going to read another. Uh, 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 Will Warren's prayer include us all? Is a uh, we're going to read this article from that was in the Orange County Register today. Uh, definitely worth passing on because it again shows you where people are thinking nowadays. Uh, this is from a religion professor. We'll talk about that when we get back. In the meantime, if you would like to email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or if you would like to support Pir- uh, Pirate Christian Radio and fightingforthefaith.com directly, go to fightingfaith.com and click on the donate button. Okay? Your gifts help keep us in production. We'll be right back.
This sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. Alright, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Alright, so I'm holding in my hand... An op-ed piece written by Benjamin Hubbard, who is Professor Emeritus of Comparative Religion at Cal State Fullerton. Because everyone knows that Cal State Fullerton is just a bastion of uh, confessional Christian thinking, right? (laughs) The headline reads, Will Warren's, that's Rick Warren's prayer, uh, include us all? And the reason I'm reading this to you is because this, I think, kind of demonstrates where the the current zeitgeist is in the culture. Americans have this are obsessed with political correctness and inclusiveness. And apparently um, it's not apparently these people are beating down the walls of Christianity and saying, you've got to stop with your exclusivity and these exclusive truth claims and these claims that there's only salvation in Jesus Christ. We're offended and we don't like it. And, and, and that kind of exclusivity and negativity, what is that? What did McClary call it? Polarizing and, and, and dehuman. Never mind. So, um, so he, Benjamin Hubbard writes, he says, President-elect Barack Obama's choice of Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church to give the invocation at his inauguration on January 20th upset many of Obama's supporters. But that's okay, because um, I've got another article that says that uh, uh, Obama threw threw those people a fig leaf. Concord, New Hampshire, the first openly gay Episcopal bishop will say a prayer at the Lincoln Memorial for one of President-elect Barack Obama's first inauguration events. So there we go, an openly gay bishop. Uh, So 
<sighs> you, you know there was a day when gay meant happy. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, all right. So, uh, anyway, I, I, that was a little side here. Okay. So, this uh, inviting Rick Warren has uh, upset many of Obama's supporters, but it's consistent with his agenda of reaching out to all Americans and attempting to make us all one nation to be inclusive. Okay. Um, hasn't America, we've all been Americans with different opinions, right? Isn't that the whole point of the freedom of speech that we could express our various and different opinions? what I always thought so. Okay, so apparently we can't... Never mind. I just... Again, we continue. Okay, still, it, it was a gambit that has caused an intense criticism from many of his progressive supporters. By the way, progressive. Whenever somebody says the word progressive, I want you to translate that word. I want you to... You know, progressive means liberal. And, uh, and, and, you know, and so when you hear of progressive Christians, it's a code word design. Progressive Christianity is, is not progressive. Okay. It's Christianity doesn't progress anywhere. It, it, it's, you are to proclaim the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We don't get to progress in Christianity doesn't progress. It it's the, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You know, the times may change. The people may be different. The world may have better technology, but we all have the same sin problem. In fact, my sin problem is every bit as acute of a problem as anybody who was living back in the first century. Okay, so we don't get to Christianity doesn't progress. It's a revealed religion. Anyway. All right. For many of his progressive supporters, gays and lesbians were especially offended by Warren's support of Proposition 8, the ban on same-sex marriage in California, and his hurtful comparison of gay and lesbian marriage to pedophilia and incest. To Rick Warren's defense, which I'm, it's also odd for me to do, uh, Rick Warren was basically saying that pedophilia and incest are sins, and the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin too. It must be said, in fairness, that a considerable number of conservative Christians are unhappy with Warren's having accepted Obama's invitation and were not pleased with his earlier invite of Obama to speak about HIV-AIDS at his church. And the reason why is because he, Warren gave credibility to Barack Obama, you know, like it or not. Pastor Warren may now have a decision to make. Will his invocation be inclusive in the spirit of Obama's invitation? Will Rick Warren's invocation be inclusive? That's the new high morality that we're supposed to shoot for. Inclusivity. I, I hope not. Well, let me read. No. Okay. Will the prayer be more universal in scope by including all believers, or will it be in, it will in, invoke only in Jesus' name? Okay, so... Listen to what he said here. Let me read this again. Will the prayer be more universal in scope by including all believers, or will it be invoked only in Jesus' name? Well, Rick Warren's a Christian. Right, okay. Right. But see, so this guy, what I found interesting about the sentence, so remember, words mean things, okay, is that he's basically saying that there's a world of all, the world of all believers, and then there's this narrow spectrum of those who only believe in Jesus. Okay. Well, we as Christians, from the, a biblical point of view, would basically say the only believers are the ones who trust in Christ for their salvation. Everyone else is an unbeliever. There are those who have faith in Jesus Christ, and there are those who don't. Okay. So this guy's way of thinking is is that there, there everybody's a believer. 
in we need to be inclusive of all believers and christianity says oh no 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 jesus is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except for through him okay and anybody jesus proclaims that to everybody inclusively proclaims that but only those who trust in him are included in the kingdom all right so of course warren praise in his savior's name in his own church and in other christian gatherings and he recently stated i'm a christian pastor and will pray the only kind of prayer i know how to pray but the inauguration is a civic event for the people not just the approximately 78 percent of americans who embrace christianity jesus is not the savior of jews muslims uh, the baha'i faith zoroastrians sikhs buddhists and jains hindus uh, respected yes worshiped no now that's an interesting statement he says Jesus is not the savior of Jews, Muslims, the Baha'i faith. So, okay, now, I want to clean this up a little bit here. Okay, the scripture is clear. Christ died for the sins of the whole world, right? So Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Correct. Okay, so that means that Jesus is the savior for everybody who's ever lived, regardless of what religion they practice, right? Correct. Okay, so... Now, this is a very interesting statement, okay? So the reality is, is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, but only Christians recognize that fact. These other religions do not, do not believe that Jesus died for their sins. They reject that doctrine. But he's, the way he puts it is, is that um, Jesus is not the Savior of Jews, Muslims, and the Baha'i faithful, and things like that. Jesus actually is the Savior of everybody who practices these other religions. The problem is is that uh, Christ calls you to repent and believe the good news that he died for your sins. Okay, And when you do that, you're no longer a Jew or a Muslim or a Baha'i or a Sikh, a Buddhist, a Jain, or a Hindu. You cross over from being one of them to being a Christian. If you're playing baseball for one team and you get traded... You're not playing exactly. for both teams. Exactly. Yeah, good baseball analogy, John. You play <laughs> for the team that you're on, not the other side. Right. Okay. So. Oh, uh, man. Okay. So by contrast, the word Lord. Okay. So he's making a case here that he really thinks that uh, Rick Warren should pray in the Lord's name. In By contrast, the word Lord is inclusive. The word Lord is inclusive. Why? Because it's vague. Uh, in, the, in the capitalized form, Lord, it, it is the term used to designate the special Hebrew word for God, Yahweh. In most English translations of the Hebrew uh, Bible Old Testament, it is also often used to address or refer to Jesus in the New Testament, Lord, Arabic, Rabbi. It's uh, regularly invoked by Muslims as a sign of humility when praying to Allah, which they consider to be God. Warren very well may intend to use both words, Lord and in Jesus' name in his invocation. If so, I hope he will reconsider. As already noted, the inauguration is a civic event for all citizens, so all should feel welcome. Well, Jesus says, uh, well, let's, let's read a little passage of scripture here. Um, see, it, it, that's the thing, is that the Christian message is that Christ died for the sins of the world, and um, and that everybody is included in the invitation to repent and believe the good news. <laughs> Christians are very inclusive. But see, the thing is, is that you've, you've, you've got to understand what it is that they're talking about here. Um, for instance, that, that pernicious uh, verse that's always out. Remember the guy with the multicolored 
clown wig behind the field posts all the time. John three sixteen. John three sixteen guy. Well, this this is that passage that he was referring to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Does that sound inclusive to you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Christian inclusivity is different than their idea of inclusivity. Their idea, the world's idea of inclusivity is to basically, um, we all have to agree that everybody's right. And we have to respect everybody's religious beliefs. But Christians can't respect the beliefs of modern day Muslims, of Jews, Baha'i, Bahudas, uh, Jains, and stuff like that, right? You know, we don't bow down to those idols. No. Okay, well, let me continue. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So just, this is great news, okay? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, that's everybody. Okay, they, they want, Christ wants everyone to be saved. That's really his, 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 his desire. Unfortunately, that's not going to be what happens. And I, how, why that he's, you know, long story there. Anyway, so whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here's the deal. God is completely inclusive. Christ died for the sins of the world, and whoever believes in him will not be condemned. But notice in this pass, in this this op-ed, who's God? Okay? That's the real question. Who's God in this? Because the God this guy's referring to himself. Um, or the zeitgeist, the current uh, spirit of the, of the age, um, is wants an inclusive God that doesn't condemn anybody or exclude anybody, right? But see, biblical inclusivity says that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And we got to go out and Christ, Christianity is inclusive. Christ died for everybody, for everybody. Therefore, go and preach the gospel and proclaim the repentance and the forgiveness of sins to whoever recklessly right all right okay let me go back to this okay so warren may very well intend to use both words lord and in jesus name and in in and in his invocation if so i hope he will reconsider i've already noted that the inauguration is a civic event for all citizens who all so all should feel welcome did they ask a christian pastor to give this warren is a christian pastor oh okay yeah just, just checking in the very loosest sense of the word. Okay. Now, the inauguration prayer controversy raises another issue, whether any prayer should be said at the event. See, that's the thing. If, if we're going to represent every – be inclusive of everybody's views, well, what about those pesky atheists? Okay. Just even having a prayer automatically makes them feel <laughs> unincluded. It's not possible. <laughs> oh, man. The atheist the, uh, and, and activist Michael Newdow – has filed a federal lawsuit to block prayers and the mention of God's name in the inauguration. Based on past Supreme Court decisions, he is unlikely to succeed. Congress begins sessions with prayer and the words, So help me God, have been part of the presidential oath of office since 1933. Newdow may be uh, technically right in wanting no prayers at the secular inauguration, but tradition and religious roots of the nation will undoubtedly trump his effort. So we can't be completely inclusive, can we? No, because if you have a prayer, then the atheists automatically feel that you're you're not being you're not including their views. 
So we're left with the possibility, at least, of living with compromises. Secularists living with a religious invocation and benedictions. Conservative Christians living with a more inclusive and universalistic approach to the prayers. It goes without saying that I hope that the Reverend jo- Joseph Laurie will use Lord God or any or another more I- inclusivistic term. Inclusivistic term. Uh, in his scheduled uh, closing benediction. And whether such a compromise comes to pass, there is a sort of prayer or profound sentiment that everyone can share while witnessing the swearing into the 44th U.S. president. It is the sense of wondering gratitude that the trajectory of the American history from slavery to civil war to Jim Crow to Martin Luther King's struggle to un- unto death and finally to Obama's triumph is happening in our time. Well, there's the silver lining, right? But I read that because it kind of shows... You know, the fact that right now in America, the way inclusive is is basically being defined, inclusive means that you can't speak against somebody. You can't say anything that would make somebody feel like what they believe is wrong. You can't make somebody feel like you have to you have to bow down to whatever anyone believes. You have to be inclusive. Uh, Well, Christian inclusivity is basically that Christ died for the world, right? Whoever believes in him, whoever, whoever, anybody, Jew, Greek, slave, free, homosexual, heterosexual, uh, even an atheist who repents of his sins and trusts in Christ will be saved. Can you believe that? A Muslim who, who hears the gospel and repents and believes in Jesus Christ, he will be included in the kingdom too. Got to be the Jesus of the Holy Bible, not the right. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Or... See, we don't need to redefine Jesus. We we already have an inclusive message. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's our inclusive message, and let's boldly preach it. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> okay, for the balance of the program, we're going to do a sermon. Well, can I call this a sermon? Um, we're gonna we're gonna listen to. Uh, well, um, his name is Perry Noble. <laughs> We're going to listen to Perry Noble, and uh, Perry Noble is the uh, pastor at New Spring Church in Anderson, South Carolina, I think, and uh, we've we've done a review of him before, and this particular sermon, what I want you to pay attention to, ay, ay, ay. Um, I can't play the whole thing because it's just too long, okay? It is just outrageously long, but um, it's from a, a, their new sermon series called No Perfect People Allowed. And uh, what I want you to pay attention to is what he does with the scripture at this point. Now, remember, the the scriptures tell the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to preach to Timothy that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that pastors are to preach the word in season and out of season. Right. For a time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but instead will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Okay. So Christian pastors are supposed to, uh, let me see if I got this right, uh, preach the word, right? Yes. Okay, now I just <laughs> just want to make sure I've got that. Okay, that being said, um, I <laughs> this is, and Perry Noble, by the way, he, when I went to the Purpose Driven uh, Community Gathering back in the, you know, May, May, um, early summer, late spring of this year at Saddleback. I was invited to come to that event. Um, 
Perry Noble was one of the people who was on the stage who sat on a panel and was answering questions. Actually, I took a couple of photographs with him afterwards when he was signing autographs. So Perry Noble is, a, let's say he's a rock star among the purpose-driven crowd. Okay, uh, he's so much of a rock star that uh, that nobody would even dare say that it was inappropriate for him to have his praise and worship band play um, ACDC's Hell's Bells in church, which is what they did. Um, so, um, but uh, let's let's is this a sermon? Just listen carefully to what he does. It doesn't go by quickly, but you'll see what I'm saying here. So, this is the no perfect people allowed sermon. Good morning. How we doing? Anderson campus, Greenville campus, and Florence campus. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you know, uh, New Spring Church is what they call a multi-site church. Um, I've likened this to pastoral pornography. Um, This idea that uh, they basically videotape him and then they go to these different campi, and um, is that campi is a plural of campus, right? <laughs> they go they go to the different venues, and then they play the video on a really large screen with different praise and worship bands and and stuff like that. And he's the teaching pastor there. This year, we're also wanting to open a Tahiti campus, and I think I need to go there for six months and reach those people for Jesus because they need him. All right. Uh, if you have your Bible, let's go. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And just kind of let you know that and from now until June, we're going to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon that Jesus preached. He preached, if you read through it straight, straight through, it'll take like eight minutes. And so we're going to take five months to, to get through this. Yeah, that's right. You heard that right. <laughs> A sermon... <laughs> You can read the Sermon on the Mount in eight minutes, and they're going to take six months to work their way. (laughs) Which basically makes you go, what are they going to do? Piecemeal this sermon out one verse at a time? Seriously. Is it because they're going deep in it? As you will see, that's not really the case. Because Jesus, it's incredible how practical Jesus was. He talked about um, eternity. He talked about bitterness, how to get over bitterness. He talked about heaven. He talked about hell. He talked about marriage. He talked about divorce. He talked about sex. He talked about money. Um, He talked about every issue that every one of us deal with on a daily basis. And so we're going to take the next several months and just go through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've got it split up in five different series. This one's called No Perfect People Allowed. We're going to jump into that um, in just a few minutes, the next series is called I Want a New Marriage, <clears throat> just in case anybody's ever had that thought. Uh, some of you are like, I would like a marriage. And, uh, and so it's, we'll get to that too, maybe. Anyway, um, today I've got two goals. Uh, two goals. I've got really two goals, and that's all I've got. Today I want to cast strong vision. Uh, there are people coming to this. He wants to what? <laughs> do you use a fishing pole for that? How do you <laughs> Huh. I'm sorry, but there's a whole new version of the Christian subculture, and these guys are using language. They're using words that you're sitting there go, "What does that mean? Can you give me an example from the New Testament of any of the apostles spending time casting strong vision?" <laughs> what is? That? 
this church and maybe you've came for a, a week or maybe a month or, or maybe a few months. And today, um, I want to cast strong vision. If you're in Anderson, uh, if you're at our Anderson campus, you've heard some of these stories before. Um, and I come out about two or three times a year and I really just kind of go for it. Um, I can't afford therapy, so I do two or three sermons like this a year to help me out. Hi, my name's Perry. See, some of y'all said hi, Perry. See, you got it. All right. Messed up people in here. So, okay, so this sermon, he's going to cast strong vision. He's really going to go for it because he can't afford therapy. So this is this is part of some kind of a self-imposed 12-step program for him to recover from what I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but um, anyway, what a, what a lead-off for a sermon, right? And But remember, the preface, he said that we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be working through Matthew. He said, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Did he not? He did. Okay, why uh, Why am I opening up my Bible for this? I don't know yet. Let's find out. Um, the second goal I have today, um, and this is not for all of you, it's for some of you, is I want to deeply offend you. In fact, um, if I have people get up and walk out of the service today... Um, I have achieved my goal. Um, if the more religious you are, the more offended you're going to be. And when you leave, as you're leaving, as you, if you're thinking, he offended me, um, I hope he knows that. I, like, I knew that before you even got here today. And my goal is to make you mad in the name of Jesus. And there we go. The goal is to make you mad in the name of Jesus. So, so grab your Pepsid, folks. You know, gas X or you know whatever your favorite antacid product is. You know, because apparently he's setting out with the goal of making you mad. I, you know, I thought the goal of a pastor's job, you know, pastor sets out with a goal of preaching the word, proclaiming Christ, exalting Jesus Christ, but by, by preaching the gospel, right? Or as Paul said, I chose to know nothing among you, Corinthian church, except for Christ and him crucified. Very noble, I choose to know nothing among you except for to offend you and to make you mad, you religious people. Okay. And I'm not joking. <laughs> like, I got one amen, and everybody else is like, it's me, it's going to offend me. Probably. <clears throat> I'm so up this morning. Y'all don't understand. I've had coffee all morning. I've had four hours of sleep and I'm just, I'm about to freaking explode. All right. Seriously, if we weren't on camera, I would come out into the crowd right there. You guys would just have to catch me. So, but we're on camera. Greenville, Florence, my peeps. Anyway, I got a question and this is the way we're going to start. I got a question and I want you to be incredibly honest because you're in church and church is a place where you can be honest. And so I got a question. I want you to be honest. How many of you text while you drive. Could I see hands right here and just leave them up, leave them up, leave them up. All right. The ones that aren't raising their hands are probably parents of teenagers that told their teenager not to text while they drive. Seriously. All right. You can put them down. It's kind of like you tell your teenager don't speed, but you got a radar detector in your car and it's kind of messed up. Anyway, we'll talk about that at another time. Integrity. Um, see, I'm not comfortable with you texting while you drive. Some of you, I mean, there's a lot of textually active people in this church and it kind of and some of you are like, I practice safe text, and I understand. I, under, I understand. But You know, somebody sent me that sound, but I got to load it up. <laughs> oh, man. I understand. I'm not comfortable with you texting. Now, I can text. Isn't this the way you feel? I can text because I'm good. 
I can text because I know how to text. In fact, I've got a system. How many of you have this system where I drive with my knees and I can text with both hands? How many got that? See these? Yeah, you're awesome, right? And to me, it's not a problem. Now, I have gotten behind people that are texting. And what exactly does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Was Jesus texting? Maybe. Yeah, okay. You know. (laughs) (laughs) know, Jesus was texting, you know, while I was wearing my Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Okay, I'm, I'm a little bit... Okay, we, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's how what he said, right? I guess they're all open. Okay. Prayed for them out loud. And, but but I, I can handle it. Have you ever been like that? Uh, now, I, I think personally, I think I, I can text with the best of them. Now, there's some of you teenagers, I can't because y'all can do this and y'all have the, the symbols and the signs and the word. I don't, I don't have all that, all right? I mean, I still spell the whole word out sometimes, but I can go like this. And so the other day, I'm riding down the road and Karis, my one and a half year old daughter, is in the car seat. And by the way, car seats nowadays, like a nuclear explosion could go off and your kid's fine. So I don't even, I don't even understand that. So she's back there in, in the car seat. I'm riding down the road. Isn't that the purpose of a car seat? I'm texting because isn't it funny? You can, you're completely normal until your phone goes off. Like it goes, ding, and you're like, oh, and, 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 and like you have to respond right then. Like the world is not going to be right until you respond to that text because that text is more important than your safety. And so you're like, oh, and, and so you, and so you get the phone and you're like, oh, that is awesome. And so you, st- and so I got a text that was of grave importance, like the fate of the world was depending on it probably. And so I, I start texting back and, you know, I'm just kind of in my car, I'm riding down the road and I looked up. And there was a row of mailboxes in front of me. And I thought, now, now, it's funny how these thoughts all go through your mind in about one second. I thought, I don't remember them being on this road. Then I just realized that I wasn't on the road anymore. And so, without even thinking, I dropped the phone, which you don't want to do. The goal is to not drop the phone. I dropped the phone, and I jerked the wheel like this, which made the whole car swerve, and we went over to the other side of the road. And then I jerked it back like this, and we came back in the middle. I mean, we're all over the road. Karis loved it. She's like, more, more, more. I'm like... Now, there's some policemen at our service this morning. You need to know... I did not hit the mailboxes. I did not. But some of you have done that. You've been driving down the road. You get the CD and you look up and you're like, hey, a tree. <laughs> and so isn't it, isn't it crazy how you react? And so, so later on, I'm driving down the road and I kind of put the phone to the side. I didn't return the text. Somebody's going to wonder about that. And I started thinking, I, I, I was okay. I'm safe. But had I not looked up in time, I could have caused a lot of damage. And had, had there been a car coming in the other lane... I could have, I could have gotten killed. I could have killed them. I could have killed my daughter. I'm all because, all because, all because I took my eyes off the road for just a few minutes. I took my eyes off of where I was going. And if you, you know, maybe we should form a group, Mothers Against Texters. So it could be Matt. Yeah, in California, you can't text anymore. I mean, we we have a law that went into effect January first. You you can't text and drive at the same time. Do I need a savior? Do, what did 
what is Jesus's role in this text message that we're hearing here? Uh, Jesus the pound symbol. Okay, good guess. All right. Take your eyes. And if I take my eyes off of where we're supposed to be going in life, we can do a lot of damage. In fact, some of us, see, that's my texting story. Some of us, that's your life story. There's a point in your past where you took your eyes off the road and you didn't swerve in time. In fact, you did some damage to your life. You did some damage to other people. And you, listen, you know, you know. Uh, I did that yesterday. The day before, uh. you did that. In fact, some of you, that's not a, that's not a part of your past. That's a part of your present. You're like, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm doing damage to my life because you took your eyes off of where God has for you to go. You took your eyes off of Jesus. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we can do some serious damage. It could have been when you went to college. You know, the problem here is that he's got a very low view of sin. Very low. <laughs> he doesn't even he does not even get what the law is about. Some of you might have accidentally, maybe at one point, kind of sort of maybe accidentally taken your eyes off the road and you, and you did some damage. And, uh, folks, we all sin in thought, word, and deed by the things we don't do and by the things uh, we do on a daily basis. Every time you sin, you're doing damage. It could have been spring break. It could have been your first marriage. It could have been your second marriage. In the third marriage. See, wow, what a view of sin. You know, he's fishing here. Wow, maybe. Remember back when you were in college and you were on MTV's spring break and you flashed people, you know, your your naked chest. So you can count your sins. Yeah, I can count my sins on, on one hand. <sighs> could have been the four. I mean, I mean, we could go on. It could have been that time you took that job. It, it could have been that one decision that turned into... You know, does he have any concept of what the Ten Commandments say what, whatsoever? I mean, just a simple examination of your life in light of the Ten Commandments might make you um, uh, not think that you can count all your sins on one hand. It was a series of bad decisions, but the reality this morning is this. There are some really screwed up, imperfect people in this room. I mean, you're messed up. No. This is some kind of a great revelation. It's so important that the, the, the name of the sermon series, No Perfect People Allowed, and his definition of somebody who's not perfect is somebody who may have taken their eyes off the road at one point in their life and may have hurt somebody else as a result of it or, or, or done some damage to their life. <sighs> Just go and if you don't hear anything that I say today, hear this. You are a messed up person. In fact, right now, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say you're messed up. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just tell them. You know, this is such a great, you know, big revelation, right? You know, in our church, we John, we confess this every single Sunday. We actually in the Lutheran church, we start off our service with a confession of sins. And believe me when I tell you when every time I do that, it's you know, I'm confessing that I'm completely screwed up, that I'm by nature sinful and unclean. I've sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. And compared to the confession of sins that we do every single Sunday in our liturgical little Lutheran church, this is nothing. And you get absolved of those. Oh, sins. absolutely. See, it's not. It's not that I just confess the sins, but I get to hear. I get to hear Christ say, "Your sins are forgiven." Right. 
Okay, so here we've got this pastor declaring you might have one time during spring break or maybe in your previous marriage or maybe right now you are doing something that may have caused damage in your, and you're screwed up. This is tiptoeing. And telling your neighbor. This is, this is tiptoeing on the issue of sin. Don't want to upset anybody, but he thinks he's brave because he said to them, he said it, you're screwed up. But his example was just so tepid and, I'm sorry, wimpy. I mean, good night. So we are having too much fun. There's some husbands and wives going, you messed up. Oh, you me- I'll tell- I will mess you up. Anyway, so don't go there. There's some messed up people here this morning. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. And I'm just going to talk about the southeast region of the United States because that's where we are. I had a friend tell me one time, he planted a church in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, the Pacific Northwest is the toughest place to plant a church. I'm like, no way, bro. The southeastern United States is the toughest place to plant a church because everybody thinks they're perfect. Nobody thinks they need Jesus because they went to Bible school when they were seven years old. I'm telling you, and the toughest place to plant a church is in the southeast. Because here's the deal. Here's the myth that we believe for so long. You don't bring a person to church that's imperfect. Like, like if your marriage is bad, don't go to church. And if your children are rebellious, don't go to church. And if you've got a drug problem, for God forbid, don't go to church. And if you have issues in your life, don't go to church. And if your life is falling apart, don't go to church. Wait till you get your life perfect and then go to church but there is no there's a reason why there's people who feel that way by the way it has to do with the fact that in in american evangelicalism there's been a predominant preaching of the law without the gospel okay uh and uh, you need to do this and do that and the, the the predominantly the predominant confusion in christianity is that you have to save yourself and that you make yourself right before god and they and they don't hear the gospel that christ died for our sins you know, what's funny is I don't have any angst like this. I'm screwed up on every on every level that you can possibly think of. And what do I do with my sins? I take it to church and I confess it and I get to hear that Christ has forgiven me, that he died even for those sins. And as a result of it, I get to hear the absolution. And I don't have to turn to my neighbor and say, you're screwed up. Instead, I say to my neighbor, Christ be with you or the Lord be with you or God's peace be with you. I speak peace and love and forgiveness to my fellow Christians, my the fellow sinners who attend my church. And here he's sitting there, well, the, the predominant view, you know, folks, this has to do with just bad law preaching. And he's reacting. And in one sense, I can't blame him because he's reacting against that legalistic mindset that, that you know, that is pervasive in certain sectors of the country and in, in their preaching. But as, uh, at this point, he's not doing, he's not really doing anyone a favor. He's not really giving us the real solution. And I have no idea what this sermon's about yet. No one here this morning that has it completely together, including me. And so I prayed and I begged God years ago, God, I just want to, I just want a place. I just want a church where it's okay not to be okay. I want to create an environment, Lord, if you'll just let me, where people can walk in the door. No, it's not okay to not be okay. You have to bring your sins and you've got to receive the forgiveness of sins. It's not, it's, it, folks, it's not enough to just go to a church where it's okay to not be okay. You've you, you got to understand that's the problem. The problem is that none of us is okay. You need a church where you're not going to hear it's okay. It's okay. In fact, I don't say that to my children. When they screw up, you know, and, and we have to have the talk. Uh, the talk that basically says, uh, son, well, actually, the son doesn't live here anymore, uh, daughter, 
you know, child, you have screwed up. And they're sitting there and they've got tears streaming down their face and they know that they've been caught. They know that they did something wrong and they feel terrible and, and the conversation is scaring them. They're, they're worried about the punishment and all that kind of stuff. What they never hear from me is say, that's okay. It's okay. You know what they hear instead? I forgive you. There's a world of difference between those two statements. And we work from the philosophy, we confess our sins and we absolve each other. We forgive each other our sins. It's okay to be not okay in this church. It's not, it's not okay to not be okay. That's the problem. We need to hear the forgiveness of sins. Knowing we're screwed up and not having to pretend that we're religious and not trying to cover up our problems. Listen, the per you, the person next to you, the person on stage, everybody here is messed up because there's no perfect people allowed in this church. None. And if you're perfect, leave. Now, people ask me, where do you get this idea? It's the same place I get most of my ideas from. Scripture. The Bible says this in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to just read the first two verses. Okay. Well, whew. I, I had my Bible open. It's collecting I know. Dust. I know. Hey, blow off the dust. There, we got the dust off his Bible there. We're, you know, an eon ago, he had people open up their Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Now, when he saw the crowds, I got to stop right there. He's going to stop with verse 1 now when he saw the crowds. Oh, man. I could see where this is going. He's one of these purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive types, which basically means that uh, numbers are everything. Jesus was a rabbi who traveled and taught. And he taught with so much passion and he taught with so much authority that the Bible literally says all through the Gospels that great crowds of people followed him. Crowds. Crowds of people followed Jesus. You know that's what I want? I want to see crowds of people following Jesus. People have said to me, do you want a big church? I don't want a big church. I want a crowd of people following Jesus. And if that results in a big church, then that's the way it's supposed to be. I've had people say, I got a problem with a big church. You got a problem with a big church? Listen, I don't know about you, but if I go to a restaurant and it's crowded, I know the service is good and I know the food is good. Got to stop right there. Got to challenge him biblically. There's a, the John chapter 6, if you're not familiar with it, the Gospel of John chapter 6. Mike Horton of the White Horse Inn refers to this passage as the, uh, the great church shrinkage passage. Um, let's see. Um, let, me, let me read some stuff here. This is a challenging passage. Jesus in, the, uh, in, this, in John chapter 6 um, says to the crowd, okay, listen to this, the, the crowd of people come and find Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 25 is where we'll, where we'll start. When they found Jesus, uh, they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Well, truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, well, What must we do to be doing the works of God? He answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you uh, do you do that we may see and believe you? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Well, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose any of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So far, so good, right? Things are going to get real offensive here in a second, and uh, he's about ready to say things that's going to cause this crowd to dissipate. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from uh, from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my own flesh. And then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This is a tough saying, is it not? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the one, as the living Father sent me, I I live because the Father who feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught them at Capernaum. Then when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying and who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who would, who did not believe and who it is who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has it is granted to them by the Father. Now, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So Jesus says all these things that really offend people and tick them off. And as a result of it, John chapter 6, verse 66, it says that after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So uh, just real quick, um, saying that Jesus always had crowds with him that were following him, uh, that's not exactly a, a full assessment of the whole crowd theology that's given to us in Scripture. Jesus said some pretty hard things, and a bunch of people said, we're out of here. Okay, so much so that he turned to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? All right, we continue. And if I go to a restaurant where nobody's in the parking lot, guess what? I don't want to go to that restaurant anymore. I think, I praise God that the service is good. I praise God that the food is good. I praise God that Jesus is exalted. I praise God that there are crowds in this church. And I praise God that more crowds are coming and more people are going to get saved and more lives are going to get changed. That pumps me up. Why is it okay to fill up Death Valley? And why is it okay to fill up Williams Bryce? And why is it not okay to fill up God's house? God's house should be the most crowded place on the planet every single Sunday. All right. uh, Okay. Let's just go with that for a second. I would say, okay, great. If you're capable of drawing a crowd with the truth, praise the Lord. But if it takes you to compromise, to water down the word, to ask people what it is they want from a church, that doesn't qualify as actually proclaiming Christ and actually preaching his word. There's many different ways to draw a crowd. I could, if I wanted to, boy, this would be painful. I could send out an email to everybody and let them know that, uh, you know, uh, tomorrow at noon in front of uh, the Irvine Spectrum, I'm going to pour gasoline on myself and light myself on fire. That would draw a crowd, would it not? Yes, so would. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to do that. That sounds painful. Anyway, but see, it's not whether or not there's a crowd that's the issue. The the question for the Christian pastor is, are you faithfully preaching God's word? Are you proclaiming Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins or not? We are painfully long into this uh, sermon right now, and he's one sentence fragment into a text. Is he really proclaiming Christ and leading people to Christ? Is it, how can you say that you want people to know Christ if you're not actually preaching him? He's preaching about himself, by the way. Now, for those of you that don't like big churches, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> because if you get there, if you get there. How do you get there, Pastor? guess what it's going to be crowded so what do you think do you think people in a small church that their expectation that we call this a straw man by the way do you really think that people who attend a small church that their pastor faithfully preaches god's word sunday after sunday and proclaims christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of people's sins that the expectation of the people in the church is that their little church is the only little church that's going to make it to heaven and everyone else is going to hell and that pretty much is only going to be like you know a hundred people in heaven well, no, because if, if their pastor's preaching the word, then you understand the great multitude of people who are in heaven. Uh, this is just a really bad argument. To people, and they're not all going to be white. Why'd you say that? Because a lot of you are racist. And I hope you live right between two black people in heaven. 
Okay, so he's calling out the sin of racism, which, by the way, needs to be called out. That's great. But what's his solution? His solution is, I hope God sticks you between two black people in heaven. How about the solution being the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, that Christ even died for you racists out there? And you know it's a sin. And you know that God made everybody, regardless of race, in his image. That we are all, Christ died for the sins of all of us. And Christ is no respecter of skin color. So how dare you judge somebody based upon the color of their skin? Repent. Christ died for that sin. Acknowledge it to be a sin and receive his forgiveness. That's the solution, right? His solution is, well, I hope God sticks you between two, you know. And they got, it's, it's apparently an applause line. Does his solution get you to heaven? So far, I haven't heard anything that gets us okay. there. You know, okay. I, I haven't heard cry about. I heard him talking about Christ in passing, but he hasn't. He says he wants people to, you know, he wants people to know Christ, but he's not telling us nothing about Christ. But we're up to the first comment in yeah. Matthew five. Yeah. I didn't say that in the first service. Oh, that one's going on the internet. <clears throat> anyway. Now, when he saw the crowds, the Bible says he went up on a mountainside and sat down. In other words, he postured himself to teach because a rabbi in this society would posture themselves to teach and they would go somewhere and they would sit down. And when they sat down, people would gather around them because they would want to hear. They would want to hear what the rabbi taught. And Jesus was going to teach the word of God because he was the word of God. So that's all he knew how to teach. And so what was about to come out of him was going to be incredible. And he positioned himself to teach. Now, I want you to see this because now, I got to say something. He just said that what Jesus is about to say is incredible. Yet he's going to take six months to actually dole it out the sentence fragments at a time, the entire sermon on that, where if you were to just read it, it would take you eight minutes. If, if he just acknowledged that Jesus is the word of God, right? In Arche and Halagas, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He just, and, and he, what's going to come out of Jesus's mouth is incredible. That's what he said. Yet this pastor is not going to really tell us what Jesus said because we're way into this sermon and so far... <sighs> it's unbelievable. The Bible says this. Um, his disciples came to him. Now, I want to stop because when we read the Gospels, many people think that the disciples were perfect people. Do you know how messed up the disciples were? Does the text say anything about people thinking that the disciples were perfect people? He's, so he's making stuff up now. Oh, yeah. Seriously. Peter? Peter cussed? Peter cussed and cut off a guy's ear. It's all right. Jesus cleaned it up. It's all right. Jesus cleaned it up? Isn't it funny that Peter cussed and cut off a guy's ear and Jesus went, that's the guy I'm going to use to preach on Pentecost. No, Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die for his sins. Ah. <sighs> And 3,000 people are going to get saved. James and John were incredibly self-centered. They came to Jesus one time and he was like, I'm going to die and I'm going to be crucified. And they were like, okay, that's great. Um, hey, when you come in your kingdom, can we be like your right-hand and left-hand guy? Can we sit next to you? Huh? 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 Can we? Can we? Can we? Jesus was like, I don't think you get it. They were self-centered. Thomas doubted. 
If you read through the Gospels, listen, here's what I find fascinating. Jesus didn't call one scribe or one Pharisee or one perfect person to follow him. He went out and found the most screwed up, messed up individuals, and he used them to turn the world upside down. Uh, Hold on a second here. (laughs) Stop the tape once again. All right, hang on a second. Jesus did not call any scribes or Pharisees, and that's correct. And he said he, he chose screwed up people. Um, here's the difference. Okay, here's the deal. The scribes and Pharisees were every bit as screwed up as the apostles. The problem was that theologically they didn't see themselves as screwed up. They saw themselves as good people. They were self-righteous. Okay? So the difference between the two is is that one one group thought that you read the Bible in such a way as to find the things that you're supposed to do to make yourself righteous. The, the apostles were screwed up people. They knew they were unworthy anyway. And what does Christ do? Christ calls them and teaches them about the gospel. And God didn't send the disciples into world into the world to change the world. He sent them into the world to go and make disciples, to proclaim Christ in the forgiveness of sins, or repentance in the forgiveness of sins. They weren't sent into the world to change the world. They, but the preaching of the gospel, if you would preach it, one of its fruit is it does have an impact on the world. Jesus positioned himself on a mountain and perfect people didn't come to him. It was people that said, here I am, there he is. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get one step closer to him. We just always want an environment here at New Spring Church where you might not be perfect and you might fail in life and you might flop and you might fumble. But here's the bottom line. We want you to be able to come to a place that enables you to take just one more step closer to Jesus. But Jesus is the one who comes to us. <sighs> in the parable of the shepherd and the sheep. Yeah. That's what I believe disciples do. His disciples came to him. <clears throat> and he began to teach them saying. Now he said a lot. And we're going to unpack that. But I, I, I really. <clears throat> in, in prepare- watch this. Okay, actually, you can't watch it. Listen to this. Okay. That's it for Matthew. I kid you not. Okay. He's a ba- he, he so the I <laughs> I don't know how else to say this except for bluntly it says he said open up your bibles to Matthew chapter 1 and he read this. Seeing the crowds he went up to the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. That's the text. Watch what he does next, or listen to what he does next. I'm not making this up. Watch. Hearing this message, I really, really, really prayed about what we should talk about this morning. And God said, share the history of our church. Just tell the people why we started. And what our passion was and what our motives were and where we're going from here. And I argued with God. I was like, God, next year is our 10-year anniversary. I was kind of saving that for the 10-year anniversary. I was like, I got something I hadn't even shown you yet, so why don't you just shut up and do what I told you? That's the way he talks to me, just by the way. Just to... So this morning, I want to share with you briefly, and then we're going to flip over to John in a few minutes. I want to share with you a little bit about the history of our church. He read the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5, and I kid you not, folks, he goes on for the next almost 25 minutes, relaying the history 
of New Spring Church because apparently God didn't want him to actually preach the Bible. God wanted him to instead um, um, what's share the history of New Spring Church. It's all about himself. Oh, you're just being you're just being negative. You know, if your kids came home with a lesson plan that said what he's teaching, wouldn't you be upset with that teacher? <laughs> <laughs> what we'll do here, uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to listen to, uh, we're going to listen, I'm just going to fast forward and we'll listen to uh, uh, some of, just random pieces of him preaching about his uh, his church, and uh, we'll, well, here we go, let's, let's just continue on, because he's going to preach about his church. Just so you'll know why we do what we do, because there's some people here, you you show up and you leave every week and you're like... I like it, but I don't get it. And today you're, you're going to get it. And that means you're either going to come back or you're going to leave. Like, leave. And that is awesome. Most of you know my story here on the Anderson campus. I was raised in church. My mother went to a Wesleyan church. My father went to an independent Baptist church. Talk about some screwed up theology. Um, I was really messed up. In high school, I went to a friend of mine's church that was Catholic one week, and the next week I went to a Pentecostal church. I mean, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm a mutt spiritually, all right? I mean, I've got all kinds of backgrounds and stuff. And, um, and so when I was 12 years old, my mother, my mother took me to church and made me go to church every week. When she died when I was 12 years old, I broke away from church. And let me be very honest with you. From the age of 12 to the age of 19, almost 19 years old, I ran from God. And when I say I ran from God, I went through the Ten Commandments the other day. Out of the ten, I broke nine. Again, he doesn't understand. James says if you've broken, broken, if you've broken one of the commandments, you've broken them all. He has a low, he does not understand what sin is. He does not really understand how wretched he is. Sure. I mean, he's brave about saying that he's, uh, there's no perfect people allowed, and he says he's screwed up. <sighs> but who's he preaching about? Himself. And was in, uh, which one didn't you break? Thou shalt not kill. Hadn't killed anybody, but I was in a couple positions. Really, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? You're going to actually preach. If he actually had spent more time preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he would have realized he actually was guilty of murder. Where I could have very easily. When I ran from God, and I've had people ask me, how much could you experience, Perry, as a teenager? You wouldn't believe what I went through. When you run from God, I'm telling you, when you run from God... Your life can get so bad, it's not even funny. Which I believe there's some people here this morning, quite possibly, you're running from God. And listen, let me tell you something. Life's not going to get better. And Running from God? By nature, people are hostile. They're, they're actually active belligerents in a war against God. They want God dead and they want to take his place. Is that your opinion, Chris? No, actually, that's what the scripture says. Okay. Until you stop running. I just, I just need to say that. Life's not going to get better until you stop running. Tr- listen, listen to a former runner. So at the age of 19, I started going to church. I started hanging out with this group of people called Christians. They invited me to church. I didn't want to go to their stupid church. All right. Well, I'm, okay, this, this is the beginnings of the story. I'm just going to fast forward a little bit. We'll pick up the story in the middle of... Here we go. Here's more. I had three conversations. One was with my fiance, then fiance, now wife, Lucretia. And um, I was like, I, I believe God stirring me to do something. It was the summer of 1999. I said, I'm not sure what. Now, there was a church in Florida that was offering to let me come down there 15 minutes from the beach, pretty much triple the salary that I was making. And, I mean, like, it's Florida. Beach, Florida. Like, God's there. I mean, it was awesome. And I, and I told Lucretia, I said, all right, baby, um, 
let me present this to you in a completely unbiased manner. We can go to Florida. We can live on the beach. We can make a lot of money. Okay, we so we re- got that part. You just, you just pick out any random part in this story, you know, and you kind of get the idea of what's going on here. here here's, here's a photograph I mean, of their early church when they first got every, started. Everything there was borrowed. We, we didn't have a thing. We just knew that we wanted an environment where people could come to know Christ. How can people come to know Christ if you're not actually preaching Christ? And that's, that's still what we want. January of, of 2000, the biggest giver in the church walked. He left the church. I'm talking gave between 60 to 70% of the budget. He left graciously. He left kindly. But nonetheless, he left because the church was not going in the direction that he perceived it should go. God taught me. Sounds like he was right. We're all messed up people. I don't care if you're on this side of the cross or on this side of the cross. The only difference with when you're on this side of the cross is your sins are completely forgiven. You are made right with God and you will stand before him one day completely accepted and be welcomed into heaven. Now that- okay, there's the gospel. I, it's in there. Okay. Whew. Again, but what, the gospel's kind of a... It's just a sub point because everything up to this point, he's preaching about himself. We got two verses into Matthew chapter five and the entire history of New Spring Church. That's a good deal. Some of you need to take that one up. Now, uh, in May. And there it went. That was it. That was the gospel crumb that fell off the table that day. That's it. I've listened to the whole sermon. That was the gospel crumb. We hired Lee. Lee McDermott's our worship leader on our Anderson campus. We didn't have the money to hire him, but we hired him because God said to hire him. How'd you do? Well, in July, we ran out of money. And okay. He's just given again, we're like, I kid you not, this section of the sermon is almost 30 minutes long, just where he's recounting the entire history kind of off the cuff of how this church got started. Because remember, he wanted to cast vision, right? Okay. So, but I believe that. I believe we could fill it up twice. And so I remember in the fall of 2002, on August the 11th, in fact, of 2002, we were in the middle of the driest series I'd ever taught personally. It was called Highway 146. It's when I went through all the other major religions of the world. I hated that series. I hope God never asked me to do it again. Um, But I just had somebody after the church, after the first service go, man, that's my favorite series. I'm like, I'm sorry. Uh, So so I was teaching that series. And August 11th, 504 people August 18th of 2002, 970 showed up. Isn't it funny? He, I, he knows the numbers attached to the date as to how big his church was. Is it possible that numbers are his God? I don't know. We'll, we'll fast forward. To the, again, we'll just kind of pick it up a little bit later here. in the 2000, 2006, we did Lord of the Rings. 2007, we... <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Yeah, because that's in the Bible. Some incredible things take place. I hired Howard Frist, who is the campus pastor in Greenville. Challenged him. It was a great story. I don't have time to go into that. But Howard is an unbelievable man of God in Greenville. And he's going to do a great... I love Howard. He's got like 17 kids. I mean, but I love Howard. All right? He's active. Anyway, so um, Greenville campus, love that. Oh, don't judge me. Don't judge me. I got some. Anyway, I got to get to the point. All this is the introduction. All right. So. Yeah. So the, all that was the introduction. I kid you not. Okay. 
we are literally almost 45 minutes into this sermon, and I skipped over the dry, gravelly parts where he goes into bloody detail about every weekend that, you know, the entire history of the church and how many people were attending on what dates. <sighs> so, 2007, we saw some great things. We, we laid the framework for Greenville in 2008. We launched a Florence campus. Um, we, I mean, God has done an incredible, incredible work. Last year, or in 2007, I'm, also so, I'm sorry, we launched Greenville campus. We built a student facility here that is unbelievable. We're building a children's facility here on Anderson campus that is unbelievable. And in 2008, we saw more people receive Jesus and more people baptized in the history of, than, than we had. I mean, it was unbelievable. God has done some great things. But I want you to understand something, New Spring Church. It's always been about people meeting Jesus. That's, that, that's it. People are- How are they supposed to meet Jesus if you don't preach him? Uh, uh, use the force? I, I, again, it's... it's <sighs> said, you're not deep. You're right. I'm not. I never will be. I just want people to meet Jesus. How are they supposed to meet Jesus if you don't preach him? What happens then? I don't know. If he's got them, he can keep them. I just want to see people meet Jesus. And so let me share three things with you very quickly. Um, when a pastor says very quickly, he doesn't really mean it. Um, very quickly, um, in, in John chapter 1, and three things that I'm praying for that happens in our church, and then, and then we'll close. Three things. Number one, change traditions. This is where people will get up and leave and walk out. We had people get up and leave and walk out in the Greenville campus last service, um, not, not this campus. Because I would throw something at them. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I really do want people to leave um, in just a minute. Change traditions. The Bible says this in John chapter 1 verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. By the way, if you're a Christian, you understand that's your story. Jesus found you. You didn't find him because he was never lost. Jesus found you. He found Philip and he called Philip. He said, follow me. Two words. He didn't say, hey, let's come. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. He said, follow me. Now, look what happened to Philip the moment he met Jesus. Look at this. Ooh, I almost lost my place. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel. I want to stop. As soon as, Philip found, as soon as Jesus found Philip, Philip went, I got to tell somebody about this. He didn't go, oh, Jesus, let me go and sit in a room and sing some prom songs to you. And, and let's go and let's talk about deep things and, and study theology and get it. And let's just let's let's tell the world to go to hell. He didn't do that. Jesus, I mean, Philip found Nathaniel. Nathaniel got caught on fire. Is he not aware that after Jesus said, follow me, these guys spent three years with Jesus listening to every single sermon that he preached, every parable that he taught? And they at times sat there scratching their heads going, what did that parable mean? Lord, would you teach us what that meant? He's taking this isolated moment, the moment when Jesus calls Philip and then he's making a theology out of it by attacking theology? You're kidding me, right? Fire. Let's keep reading. Here we go. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Look at this. Now, stop. Doesn't that mean that Philip understood 
Moses' words. He understood the Torah. He understood the prophets. Apparently, this guy already had a pretty good theological grasp of things. Not too bad for some kind of a screwed-up, not-so-perfect uh, fisherman type. He was how would how is it possible that he knew so much about the scriptures that the scriptures promised the Messiah? Could it be that he heard it Sunday after Sunday in the synagogue? It, it's not like the disciples had some blank slate that that Jesus was working with. They were, were a complete theological vacuum. There was no scripture hidden in their heart anywhere. This <sighs> verse forty six Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Like, seriously? Nazareth? Can anything good from, come from there? And, and, and what did he say? Come and see. Come and see. Don't miss this. Nathaniel, don't miss this, don't miss this. Nathaniel was caught up in a traditional mindset that nothing good could come from Nazareth and being caught up. Okay, so believing that nothing good can come from Nazareth is, quote, the equivalent of a traditional mindset. Folks, the word traditional and tradition has some loaded meaning for us in this day. What do people think about when they think of traditional? What do they think about when they think of tradition? They think, the Roman Catholic Church, people who cross themselves. They think about the structure and order and singing hymns. And so, you see what he's doing here? The word traditional nowhere comes into it, and his interpretation of this passage is way off. I, I, I think there's more to be said that there was a prejudice against Nazareth. Can anything come from Nazareth? It's full of thieves and robbers or poor people or who, you know what I'm saying? It had nothing to do with tradition. And a traditional mindset almost caused him to miss Jesus. And I believe there are churches all over America and the world today that are caught up in a traditional mindset, and they're so caught up in their... You see the leap? I'm sorry, folks. Not Evil Knievel cannot make that leap in logic. He could not do it. Okay? So supposedly because he asked the question, can anything good come from Nazareth, that now that means that there's a bunch of... Tra- churches that are caught up in tradition that they're going to miss jesus that's not what that passage teaches at all he's allegorizing it in metaphor meta you know he's using the marcus borg historical metaphorical method we continue traditions that they're completely missing the son of god for whom the church was created we have people come to this church going i want a church where i can know the pastor i could never go to a church where i can know the pastor you need to leave (laughs) <laughs> if you want to go to this church and with the expectation i want to know the pastor leave that's what he just said he's not there to shepherd people which by the way is what pastors are the word pastor is a shepherding term do you, do you think that sheep who have a shepherd know the shepherd yeah okay all right, well, don't go to this church. No. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And apparently he doesn't preach God's word either to boot. So, I mean, this is just the perfect storm of garbage.
I'm dead serious. See, that, you've never been told that by a pastor. That's why he only stays at the church for two years. And then he leaves. You understand that, don't you? You've seen that pattern. Oh, by the way, by the way, knowing me... You know what that reminded me of? Have you seen the movie Hook? Yes. Okay, in the movie Hook... Yes. Okay, uh, Hook... Peter Pan grows up, has kids, right? And and, uh, Peter Pan, his name is Peter Banning at the time. He goes back to England to uh to the, you know the house where the darlings lived and uh and anyway hook comes and steals his children and takes them to never never land okay and there and what happens is is that smee convinces hook that what he really needs to do is get peter pan's kids to like him okay and so he has he has peter pan's kids in a classroom setting and he's teaching them and he basically basically tries to convince the kids that their parents don't love them, that they only love themselves. And he says the only reason why you know the, the only reason why they they give you things and stuff like that is to shut you up because all they want is to be you know things to be quiet. I want a cookie. I want a potty. I want I want me 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 my my mine. You know. And so he, and so what happens is uh, this sounds like Hook, you know. You, the, a pastor comes, and the reason why he leaves after two years is because he can't stand being around you and eating your food and all that kind of stuff. Really, are are is that? Is, wow, I mean the pastors I know, and the the pastors that have come to my house and had my food, uh, they've been in their parishes for decades. So the shepherd who doesn't like sheep. Right, a shepherd who doesn't like sheep. Does that is that a shepherd? I don't think so. But that's what he is. He yeah, is, this is like a, Stephen Furtick. Did you come here to uh, you know to feed your face and you know and be you know and be bloated on the word of God? And, you know that these those two are. Though, by the way, Furtick and Noble are really good friends. They talk to each other every week. He will get you to hell. I mean, when you get to heaven and you walk in and you go, I know Perry Noble, they're going to be like, oh, the guy on his face over in front of the Son of God? Yeah, that's awesome. Knowing me is not going to help you. Hanging out with me is not going to, it might help you feel enabled. Another straw man argument. The purpose of the, the, the job of a pastor is to shepherd the, feet, the sheep as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And how does he do that? Feeding them God's word. Feeding them the Lord's Supper, right? So I, 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 do you know anybody at our church that when they get to heaven and they're, they're going to say, "I know, I know Ron Hodel," because <laughs> Ron Hodel, all he ever does is point us to Christ. But the the difference is that Ron Hodel actually points us to Christ literally by reading the Word, by preaching the Word, and finding Christ in every single passage. So. Uh, uh. But the church has never been about who knows the pastor. It's about who knows Jesus. And there's a lot of people and a lot of churches that know their pastor, but they don't know Jesus. And that's a problem. Can you name some? I, I, I just, I, I'd like to challenge that. You know. Show me one scripture reference. Where Jesus said, I'll die for my church so they can know the pastor. Uh, again, it's a straw man argument. Which Corinthians? What, 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 what's the passage you're thinking of? I have, uh, uh, husbands love, love the church. 
Oh, well, okay, well, that's a little different. About husbands loving wives and things like that. That's a little different. I want to go to a church where the pastor comes visit me in the hospital. You don't, no, you don't want that. Because if I come to see you in the hospital, y'all know, it's bad. The guy behind me has the bag you're leaving the room in. Well, my last church, the pastor will come. We'll go back to your last church. It's okay. It's perfectly fine. Now, here's the deal at New Spring Church. If we know you're in the hospital, somebody will come visit you. Somebody that's called, somebody that's equipped, somebody that loves to serve, and that's their ministry, and that's their gift. They will come see you, but it will not be me because I can't do everything. God did not call me to do it all. He called us to do it all. And as we partner together, more people are reached, more lives are changed, and that's what the church is supposed to be about. I didn't like the music last Sunday. Here's the problem. You think I care. No, I mean, I'm serious. You think I give a rip what you think about our music. I don't. You don't, how, you don't understand how little I care. No, seriously. Because we have Lee McDermott and we have Tom. Can't you just feel the love of God just oozing off of this guy? I mean, it's, it's pouring from every orifice in his mm. um, in Greenville and we have Sam and Florence who pray and seek the Lord for weeks even months over what songs should be saying and then you're going to show up after a three to four minute deal and you're like I don't like the show I don't care show uh huh you don't like the show that's the problem isn't it yes okay. exactly what it is <sighs> did God like it that's what we care about and if we were singing to you, then you could have an opinion. But we're not singing to you. We're singing to Jesus. He likes it. We've had people say, I'm church shopping. If you're church shopping, I want you to hear me. I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to explain it, and then hopefully it'll happen. If you're church shopping and you think the church is supposed to be all about you, listen to me. Listen. Get the hell out of this church. <sighs> wow. Well, he should leave. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I I don't uh, do I almost feel like I should end on that. You know, you don't your church shopping. Get the hell out of this church. No invitation to stay and hear about Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Nothing. You hear the truth. No, no love. Just it's this is a brow beating. If I've ever heard one, am I offended? I feel sorry for the people that are that are hearing this. How I feel so bad for the people that who think that this is what a pastor is. They have no idea what they're missing. I mean, folks, I have been in small churches for a while now, and I think they're great. Why? Because you go deep in the scriptures, you hear Christ and him crucified, you know your pastor, and your pastor knows you. And that's and that's scary on a lot of levels. Why? Because he's able to know you enough to say, you know what, Chris, you're struggling with this sin, I can see it. Repent, or here's the forgiveness of sins. You, you, you see what I'm saying? 
Or if you don't show up for a few weeks. Exactly. In you, fact, you'll get a call no, from the pastor. I, I, even better than that, um, this goes way back. This is like you know, 15 years ago. No, maybe not that long. It was, you know, maybe it was 15 years ago. I was attending a small Lutheran church in uh, Lake Elsinore, California. The pastor was fairly new out of uh, the seminary, Kevin Colander. And uh, we had gotten into, you know, uh, just a, a really rough patch in our life. And we didn't go to church for like two weeks. You know, he showed up at my door. Where you been, Roseboro? He show- what, didn't even call me. Didn't tell me he was coming. He just popped in. Everything okay? Is everything all right? I'm worried about you. And I consider that to be a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, let me explain it. Let me explain it. If the church is supposed to be all about you, then guess what you brought in here with you? You brought hell. Hell is inside of you. Because hell is a place where you can have it your way right away. Hell is a place where it's not about Jesus. It's about you. And if you've got hell inside of you, you've got two choices in this church. You can get the hell out of you or you can get the hell out of this church. But one way or the other, the hell's got to go. I thought Christ died for our sins. Isn't that the good news? Okay. So every single one of us brings hell with us into church. I agree if you think that, you know, the church is all about you. I mean, you know, your kids is bad. You know, you're looking for all the special perks that go along with the church. There's probably a problem there. Confront it as sin and then offer Christ and the forgiveness of sins. There's no mercy here. He says he's, he wants people to know Christ, and it's all about Christ. But he makes Christ sound like him. And if Jesus is like this guy, no mercy, just browbeating or get the hell out of here kind of attitude. Uh, man, I'm I'm in trouble. You know. had betrayals to you. We've had people come going, my, my friend that I brought from my other church didn't like you. See, you think I care about what, you think I care about what people from other churches think. You think I care about political correctness. I don't. I care about the word of God in Jesus. Then why don't you preach it? How can you say you care about something that you don't preach? We got two verses before he went 30 minutes in giving the, the, the history of his church. But God told him. To. Oh, oh. Right, because God really cares more about the history of New Spring Church than He does about having His Word being proclaimed, and and having Christ exalted and the cruci- and the and Christ crucified for our sins, you know, placarded for everybody. Right? Yeah, and he's, I know He's more spiritual than I am because God talks to Him. Right. You see, that's it. How dare you question a spiritual somebody who's more spiritual than you? Because God talks to Him. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had people go, "Well, Perry, sometimes you use." Strong language. I think you do things for shock effect. I do, and I do. You say, why? Because it's in the Bible. See, here's the problem. If you, Many of you grew up in church and you got Jesus light. Is he giving us Jesus? No, he's not even giving Jesus light. No, I mean, this is, this is like donut hole Jesus. The Jesus that's not there. The, I, I don't know nothing I have not learned anything more about Jesus from this sermon. Nothing. And, and the Jesus he's describing, it seems like a really angry guy. and He's going to get, you know, I don't want to play the rest of it. 
I'm burnt out on this sermon. And that's uh, from one of the brightest lights, one of the uh, most sought-after men to give his opinion, to speak at conferences in the purpose-driven constellations. Um, Pastor... He doesn't... It's not right to even call him a pastor. Um, He's not... He doesn't want to be a shepherd, so what do you call this guy? The head teaching browbeater? He's the church star. A uh, head rock star of New Spring Church. That's right. That's, that's, that's it. All right. Well, uh, we're at the end of our show today. If you would like to email me regarding anything you heard, in fact, um, you know, just want to... Let me know if you're disgusted or agree with uh, Perry Noble. Please do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless.